Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karam. Today we're going to be talking about the principles of force length increasing sarcomere density, sometimes called longitudinal hypertrophy. It's going to be a really important module that we're building off of several force length modules we've gone through in our movement curriculum. If you aren't a member, you might want to consider becoming a member at phpodcast.com to see this entire module within all the written form, the graphics, and the the pictures that go in terms of describing the muscle cell and increasing sarcomeres at various length and why that might be important, as well as over 40 other modules diving into sections of movement, training, nutrition, and coaching. Each one is broken up into the principles practical case study only featured on the website for members, as well as the interview with the strength coach. comes along with various resources, again, graphics, and certain pictures that help with your learning. Not only that, you get special access to a private forum to go over any questions you may have about the modules or training in general. You get special access to a library of strength deficit, which goes into testing and metrics, exercises, and programming variables associated with strength deficits, so it's a very good complement to the book. And then it gets you access to the lectures and debates I've had with some other strength conditioning coaches to help accentuate your learning. And that will be something that's continuously growing. If you haven't pre-ordered Strength Deficit, I recommend getting on that now because what that's going to be is $10 cheaper than what's going to be featured on Amazon. So it's going to be a really good opportunity to get a a good resource at a cheaper price before we release on Amazon, as well as you get a copy of the programs and inspire the book. This is going to be a really seminal resource to understand how to program in peak, specifically for eccentric or concentric outputs. I'd like to make a special announcement as well. We are now officially sponsored by Realize Me. Realize Me is your command center for health and fitness. Realize Me collects all of your health and performance data in one place. It helps you bridge the gaps and allows you to create visualizations on on top of all your data, enabling you to gain a deeper insight. As a Realize Me member, you'll have access to reduced pricings on lab testing, devices, and supplements from the industry's top brands. If you are ready to get more out of your data, sign up at Realize.me to join the waitlist. Realize Me, realize your potential. I have personally been using Realize Me for the last six months, and the biggest problem I run into is where do I have, where can I see all of my data in one single place? This has been a huge tool for me, and I cannot recommend it enough, especially if your person is using certain hardware, like wearables, using various force plates, using various other tracking mechanisms in your training into one single source place. Because the biggest issue I'm running into is none of this stuff is communicating with each other, as well as it's not a single source platform to help me ha- see this visually and the impact of one on the other. I cannot recommend this enough as a, as a member of this of Realize Me, you get access to all these great discounts and all these things you probably be using anyway. So make sure you go over to realize.me, get access to this, especially as part of this PH podcast community. It's going to be a really good asset, asset for you in your training and coaching that will review a lot through the website. Realize.me, realize your potential. So we're back on the movement curriculum and we're going to dive back into this concept of force length. And for the folks that may be just new to this, I highly suggest going through our previous modules and movement because we really have been diving into this thought process of the relationship between force and length. 
And the caveat here is a lot of times as strength conditioning professionals, we can easily be tempted by the improve force and improve force without any considerations of anything else. Then we start to gravitate to certain exercises that have higher potential to use external load and that becomes center of our universe. But the truth is, is we have to think more in relationships to either what we're talking about in a lot of our coaching modules of second order of if I immediately gravitate to increasing force without any diagnostic of the length that that person can create force at, then I'm going to run into some sort of premature short uh, shortcomings or stoppages. So one of the things that we try to talk about through movement is let's at least build as much variability. And we, we've been talking about variability a lot between all of our modules, between coaching, movement, and even nutrition in regards to the larger the bandwidth that person can create force or absorb force in or move efficiently the better the resiliency and as well as really honestly the better the performance it's the fundamental aspect of of all performance training that the the idea that movement is this second thought it's not a problem until it is a problem is the opposite of what we should be focusing on in fact performance outcomes or biomotor abilities like force velocity and work are tertiary right meaning that they're they're secondary until we can achieve adequate range of motion and control at that range of motion control is going to be a big part of this one so revisit variability all of the force length podcast and modules because it's going to be a really important one to understand here you know what are we trying to do to now create force at a longer or a more more degrees of freedom position so one of the things that we talked about was create that length first right that will always regret the range or position i don't have We'll always pay for it somewhere because it's going to come up some somewhere short. So build that length in that foundational piece. That's that's the foundation of of movement. Is let's at least rule out that we have that passive range of motion, meaning that I can physically move that joint to that that degree of freedom that we're going to need in some capacity anyway, right? So it's let's just talk hip and shoulder for a while. You know those things. Well, we have a ball and socket joint that can move through 360 degrees of freedom, whether it's flexion, extension, ab adduction, or internal external rotation. And I can physically move that joint into that position unobstructed without any, any issues of hitting some sort of premature block. Now, in regards to what's the step from there is at least I have that range said, in reverse, if I don't have that range and I start to add some sort of quality to it, like force velocity or work, then I'm going to start to shrink that range prematurely. I'm going to start to get into a dynamic that, quite frankly, is going to be counterproductive over time. So get the length and then we can add whatever thing we want to it. It's like 
building a base. It's by building the foundational piece to a home or any other thing that takes multiple layers to. Now, in regards to the the next steps, it's about getting the active range next. You know, what is the ability for you to go to that excursion yourself, right? So I can physically move you there passive, and then I'm going to move you there actively. And, you know, sometimes you might want to look at this in the idea of what are the, the rate limiting factors to this, right? So if I have limited passive range, it's probably from a nervous system perspective that I have either overactive Golgi tendon organs that are responding to stretch that are sending an inhibitory message to stop that stretch. So maybe it activates the antagonist muscle. I'm sorry, muscle spindle, not Golgi tendon. Uh, muscle spindle response to stretch. Apologize for that. Muscle spindle is sending an inhibitory response to the antagonist, to the nervous system, and it's sending a efferent message to the antagonist muscle groups to contract, to stop, right? So that thought process is all this stuff is working in concert with each other to elicit hopefully a protective mechanism that doesn't let that muscle tear or rupture from ranges that it's not comfortable in. Now, on the other end, is from an active perspective, now that Golgi tendon is going to respond to tension. So the, the tissues on the closing angle side or the regressive side, you know, those start to get really shortened and the muscles on the progressive side or the opening angle side, you know, they start to get lengthened. And the Golgi tendon organ will respond to the tension in that position because it can't create tension in that shortened position when the other tissues on the other side are lengthened. These are all trainable qualities, but the big thing that we really need to establish there is when you find that functional limit from either a passive and then you find it from an active, you can start to rule out what is the potential to do movement patterns eventually down the road if I don't have these degrees of freedom. You know, and the idea is it goes flexibility, mobility, or passive, active, and then it goes to patterns. That if I want to do a squat or a hinge or a lunge pattern, that if I don't have the prerequisite ankle, knee, and hip, passive, active, that I won't be able to integrate that in a movement pattern, right? The, the sequencing, the coordination, the timing of that movement pattern is all predicated predicated off of do I have that range of motion prior to and if I don't then I'm going to run into these premature rate limiting steps that are going to alter that that length tension relationship my ability to generate force at that length and make a compensatory action like aberrant movement patterns or compensated movement patterns are the product more so from limited range of tissues than a choreographed or sequence motor system. It's too complex to say that this alpha and gamma motor neuron controlled motor pattern is something that we can override without any diagnostic of what is the actual range of motion. And there's this thought and math that simple rules repeat itself it's a term called fractals that if i don't understand the smallest most functional unit of of something very complex 
then I'm never really going to understand the complex, right? It's the whole idea of physics, right? That we're breaking it down into quantum and these small, fra small fractal pieces of the larger universe are giving us explanation to what the big system, the complex system is doing or why it's functioning the way it is. The same thing with the human body. Movement patterns have so many things that we need to account for. We're not even talking about proprioception. We're not even talking about external influences. We're simply talking about within the system, the open system that procures energy from the outside world, that if I don't have the prerequisite range of motion of the tissues and the joints that are associated with that movement pattern, I won't have the movement pattern. I hope that makes sense, right? The patterns are the way we're going to create change, meaningful change with athletes and, and our clients. It's the most linear path to creating a biomotor outcome or a aesthetic outcome. But the idea is if I don't have that prerequisite range, both passive and active or flexible flexibility or mobility, then I'm not going to have that pattern. So we have to start with the range of motion of the joints and the potential for range of motion for those joints or we're not going to be able to really elicit the change that we want. Now, as we start to work our way into the muscle cell, you know, remember that we have multiple layers of this, right? So we have the actual sarcomere working our way out into the actual muscle cell, working our way out into the fascicle, working our way out into the actual muscle group. You know, we can start to create this image in our mind of, okay, well, as I look through the sarcomere out, you know, what are the things that are actually predicating what is my length and then subsequently my force? Well, I think you can rule out right away. If I don't have sarcomeres present, it's going to be really hard to create force, contractile force. And the thing that is really invaluable, and when you look at anything in terms of a muscle biopsy, you can see distribution of sarcomeres along the muscle cell. So muscle cell is just a big long string that actually has contractile units on there. And the higher the distribution of sarcomeres, the more capable that, whenever that muscle's at that length to create force, it's the most overlap of actual contractile tissue. Where we typically see this is in the midpoint of that muscle cell. So organically, that when we get to a certain range, we'll have either less or greater amount of force generating capability, right? Without any training influence. So the middle of that muscle cell will have the ability to create as much contractile force as possible, relatively speaking to the distal and proximal. So when we're thinking about looking at where it is that rate limiting steps going to be from a one range of motion and then two control at that range, we can start to build this picture in our mind of what that muscle cell looks like and where it actually has length and where it doesn't and where it does it's for the ability to generate force and it doesn't. So proximal closer to the joint distal further away from the joint. And then somewhere in between we have more sarcomeres. So as I start to, let's say that I have, adequate passive, right? That means I have the ability to get that hip or shoulder moving through all degrees of freedom without restriction. Then I ask that person to do that on their own. 
and they have limited ability to get there. So the extensibility of the tissues, though the connective tissue, the the other things floating around in there, the space of the joint, the fluids flowing through the joint, are all allowing for that degree of freedom that we need. But then when we ask that person to get to that range voluntarily, they can't do it. This would be a poor distribution of sarcomeres in that shortened tissue or that regressive tissue or that closing angle tissue, right? So can you imagine something like a shoulder flexion? And we ask that person to lift their arm overhead on their own, that the tissues on the closing angle, the regressive angle side, so the side behind your ear, are not allowing for that person to pull their humerus up and back, right? And then it could be some sort of timing or sequence, right? Their scapula is not depressing. It's not, the glenoid fossa is not going into their actual ball and socket joint and creating this movement that we want from the shoulder, right? But the other end is we simply just might not have the contractile tissue to be able to pull voluntarily into that position. So this is where we're kind of making our way now into what do we do there? We need to create sarcomeres there. We need to give the machinery for that joint to get to that position under control. Because what does this mean from the next level? Right, That if I don't have the active range of motion, how am I going to control external load? How am I going to time that joint, right? So let's say that I have very poor regressive tissue function or closing angle tissue function. I can't contract at that. And I'm trying to come down on a pull-up. So for the for example of, of shoulder flexion, I'm doing a pull-up and I get to the bottom and then all of a sudden just drops out. That's going to be a lot of demand on other joints, Right, so maybe I lift my thorax, maybe I abduct my scapula, maybe I poke my head through another direction. All of a sudden, that my lack of strength in that position becomes a risk factor for other joints. And then we start to see orthopedic things. We start to see, start to see issues in regards to managing and controlling that movement pattern in other t- tissues and other bones and joints and connective tissues need to bear the load for that lack of function. And we'll talk a lot about this in two modules down the road, centration being one of them, creating a closed joint to create a altered, altered tensegrity relationship between compression and tension to other joints. And then we could talk about it from the idea of tensegrity, which is this, this mobile and stable unit that can create compression and tension in certain joints at certain times to elicit stability and freedom of movement simultaneously. But but again, going back to the fractal relationship is let's at least start to figure out what is the actual function from that joint before we start to look at the function from integrated joints. That if I'm doing a squat pattern and that person goes in the valgus, that is the product of 
yes, potentially weak glutes or a overly pronated foot, or it's a product of maybe that person just doesn't have adequate passive and active range in the ankle, knee, and hip. And we need to establish that we need to build that range before we start to go into complex movement pattern training, whether it's corrective exercise or or just redundant exercises like I see a lot with people doing rehab turn prehab overly myopically focusing on one singular aspect of valgus and or poor vmo function that we we don't know that like right we don't know that that is speculatory as best but i would say this if they don't have degrees of excursion of ankle knee and hip in all three planes of motion for wherever that joints function is and we can go through the joints really quickly of all right, if I have a ball and socket joint that needs some flex, extend, abduct, abduct, adduct, and then internally, externally rotate. If I have a hinge joint like the knee, that needs to be able to flex and extend, but it also needs to be able to articulate a little bit in terms of pronation, supination, or internal, or going medially and externally, right? So we can think about the elbow and the knee. You know, that, that elbow, knee, needs to move rotationally a little bit. It absolutely does. If you don't think that you're rotating at the knee, you you don't know how to you you don't understand the biomechanics of that knee. That if that foot is in this everted position or that heel calcaneus in everted position, the tibia needs to internally rotate, relatively speaking. And if you're squatting down and you lack internal rotation of the hip, that tibia is internally rotating quite a bit. And then we go down to the ankle, ankle or wrist, which is a saddle joint, and that can flex and extend, ab and adduct. And they all work together. And it's an interesting relationship between that foot or that wrist and ankle, relatively speaking, that elbow and knee, that notice that one flex and extends and ab and adduct, and the other one flex and extends, but internally and externally rotates. And the degrees of freedom and excursion that those joints potentially may or may not have predicate what actually function of those, those joints do when they're integrated into a multi-joint movement pattern. Right? So if I lack, if I'm locked the knee version in my ankle, and I lack... I lack some sort of frontal plane control of, of in ab and adducting or inverting everting of the heel. And then I look at that tibia is, okay, well, it's only got one direction to go inward. And then I look at, well, I want to get some degrees of freedom of, of my femur to move into that ball and socket joint. So that starts to try to internally rotate. Oh, I just put my knees out, point my toes out, and I can start to squat down a little bit more freely. And then I start to add a sh- ton of external load and now that that already altered length tension relationship becomes more and more of a problem because i don't have the actual function of the joint to begin with i need to work inversion i need to work external rotation of the tibia i need to work internal rotation of that femur in order to squat go through those things but i start to add a ton of muscle i start to add a ton of contractile ability at that and force generating ability at that all of a sudden, I start to get away from that. And then we start to look at that from, okay, let's start to break it down. What, are the, what does that actually lead to and manifest into? All right, well, you'll see a lot of overdeveloped tissue in the mid part of that range. You'll find where that person trains at by just simply looking at where the highest distribution of sarcomeres are. That is the breadcrumb, breadcrumb trail of what you do training-wise. And you won't see a lot of sarcomeres towards the distal end Right? I see people squat all the time and have very poor VMO function. 
very very poor actual distribution of soccer mirrors towards the distal end of that distal end of that uh, of that rec fem, maybe that vastus lateralis, vastus intermedius, all these muscle groups, right? See it all the time on the on the posterior aspect between semimembrosus and semitendinosus and biceps femoris is. And when someone gets to that end range of a hinge pattern, their compensatory action is to bend their knees because they don't have the actual functional length to contract at that that much length. That they lack the appropriate machinery to contract and move from that position. So this is the this is what we're trying to establish here is there's consequences from not having one adequate length because if I can't get the length to begin with from a passive perspective then I'm not going to be able to contract there to begin with so we need to develop that first and then we develop a system to create some sort of contractile machinery there and this is pretty simple is if we're creating some sort of tension in that range that there's going to be organically a response we'll talk about this a lot in the practical but there's there's two ways to really do that to create tension in a shortened position, it's going to add more in terms of the proximal aspect. To create tension in the lengthened position, it's going to add more in terms of the distal aspect. And this is a principle of training that I think most people really intuitively understand, but it's actually somewhat, it feels counterintuitive over time because we start to lose sight of whatever we do, we're going to get some sort of adaptation to. But specificity of training it's specific to what we repeatedly do. We're the product of what we repeatedly do, right? That that dynamic of if I only train in a certain range of motion with certain movement patterns and certain types of external load, then I'll get the adaptation specific to that. So if I only train in a partial range of motion and overly doing patterns and not really training joints and not really training the range of motion those joints are capable of and not creating any any demand at that specific range, whether it's shortened or lengthened, I'm not gonna create the adaptation there. So when I integrate that into a moon pattern, I get to that rope's end that that muscle fiber simply doesn't have the capacity to do anything in that, then what? What's my what's my alternate strategy? Start to use other joints, other other body segments, start to alter that position Right, so the greatest tension is when that muscle cell is, or the midpoint of that muscle is going to be parallel to the ground. Right, so most resistance is based off of gravity. So imagine a squat, you're going down to 90 degrees. That is when we'll have the most tension on that muscle group. But that's when we have the most sarcomeres. So from that quarter squat to 90 degree or parallel squat, that's when we have the most tension because that's where we have the most sarcomeres. We don't have the most tension in regards to that deep knee flex position or below parallel because we don't have a lot of sarcomeres. We're going to rely on more passive tissues there. But what if we did? What if when you're coming out of the bottom of the squat, you don't have to drop your chest, poke your head up, push your butt back to compensate for the lack of sarcomeres or contractile tissue there? You don't have to create a compensatory action to stabilize that external load to get to that part where I have the most functional units. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that translate a little bit more to preventing someone from 
getting artho 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 issues like like tendonitis or, or tendinopathy or potentially risking someone at getting an intercruciate ligament tear. And I'm not trying to say that like, oh yeah, below parallel squats, you need to do that or not say it. I'm, I'm saying that's a universal thing that we need to have the range and the function at that range to be able to translate that into injury prevention and performance. That if I have a greater bandwidth and greater variability, then I'm going to have a greater function overall. It's fractal. It's a universal rule that the lack of variability will have consequences. The greater of variability will diminish the potential external load it can use, but who really cares? What does it matter if you squat 500 pounds and you're getting hurt all the time? The end goal is what? Prioritizing that is first and foremost. And the person that's hurt is not really effective person that can't get to that degrees of freedom and actually recover from that, whether they get hurt or not, is not that effective. And that might come in the expense from really loading up certain movement patterns over and over and over again to reach a certain arbitrary number of performance that has a lot of, a lot of compensatory action to accomplish it. That we reach this rate limiting point and we start to find alternate strategies, right? We see it in every, mo- every world and performance that's really singular focus in terms of exercise selection power lifting widen your feet push your butt back widen your feet push your butt back on deadlift widen your hands arch your back on bench no one did say man it's the best way to develop quad best way to develop hand posterior chain best way to develop chest in fact most of these people if you're actually looking at the actual physical manifestation of stressing tissues have extremely poor development in most of those muscle groups. That if we're looking at it from just the pure function of that movement pattern and the muscles associated with it, you're thinking right off the bat, quadriceps should be predominantly quad. Posterior or deadlift should predominantly be a posterior chain, whether it's, whether it's glute or some sort of hamstring. We should be looking at potentially looking at bench is primarily pec and then some sort of tricep development but look at most power lifters compare them to a bodybuilder do they really have the development from the external load that they're using in those muscle groups yes or no and i think most people know right and there's some people who do right and those are the people that probably aren't very good because they're too bodybuilding focused and they get get this stigmatism associated with they're just Face and body guys, but the reality is, is like their their specificity is predicated off of external load, and that doesn't really create to adaptation in those muscle groups. I mean, this is this is true, and you can say pretty much any sport, right? But the idea is they're doing a job to reach a certain functional outcome, not to create function, and it's okay. Not. Their goal is to lift as much as they possibly can and squat, bench, and deadlift. That's fine. But most people don't really need that. Most people don't really care about that. And to arbitrarily say that's someone stronger and better, it's something in terms of those three exercises universally accepted as what everyone needs. It's silly. It's dumb. It doesn't make sense. It's not true. So as we start to get further and further back into the actual muscle cell, you'll start to look at all right, that muscle cell is going to be either in a really shortened position or really lengthened position, right? So that distal development 
that longitudinal development of sarcomeres along that muscle cell is going to be the product of being lengthened. And that Z-disc has a certain length that it can go, and then it ruptures, right? We talked in previous modules about titan, titan being this connective tissue within the actual sarcomere holding the Z-disc to the end line. That if that Z-disc can't hold any longer because that sarcomere is just at such a functional end length and it has to rupture, that the adaptation of that is, hey, I can't do it with the sarcomeres that I have at this length. I need to create more sarcomeres distally. I need to add more functional contractile tissue so when I'm next time at that length, I can actually create some sort of force, especially if I'm asked to do it repeatedly especially if that muscle group needs to be good at that length because it's such a demand there. Remember, specificity. We'll be good at what we repeatedly do. So if we train at length, whether it's singular isolated joint action or multi-unit actual joint movement pattern, then if I add more length and create more demand to force at that length, then I'll create the adaptations necessary. So distally, it's all about stretching that sarcomere. Approximately, well, we're not really stretching it. It's going to be more of an overcoming ISO, right? So we're looking at it from, we're shortening the tissues there. So we start to create and go back into the length is that Golgi tendon organ, I'm sorry, that muscle spindle responding to stretch is trying to send inhibitory action. That's when you start to see compensatory actions to take it off. It's overriding that muscle spindle at length, letting that sarcomere rupture, and then with that Z-disc pull away from the actual M-line, rupturing the Titan to create either a more robust sarcomere, because it actually can create adaptation. Connective to, titan can actually reinforce that sarcomere at length, which leads into this whole idea of passive energy production, but that's, that's what we talked about in other modules, so we'll hold off on that. But the other demand of sarcomeres being more present on the distal end is really about that muscle spindle downturning to allow us to get there. And that's the whole premise of stretch shortening cycle. And the more force I can create at length, the better, the, the better, the, the higher the ceiling. But on the other end, it's about downturning that Golgi tendon organ. That's going to respond to tension, right? That crampy sensation coming from that, coming from that afferent message where it's more gamma and slow as opposed to alpha and fast. It's, this idea that if I have a lot of overly tense muscle groups, that the, the muscle group, the sarcomeres in the midpoint of that muscle belly are overly taut and tense, that they can't hold the line, so to speak, right? So you're imagining, you're imagining a, a suspension bridge where only the top part of the suspension actually has any stability and the bottom part of that suspension bridge doesn't. Then it's going to start to look at it from this context of, all right, I'm going to have to add more sarcomeres here as well. So creating strength, overcoming ISOs or a, a more closing angle ISO or more closing angle tension. And the idea is to actually create some sort of specific outcome here. We can start to create sarcomeres in that area. And that's the, th that's the concept here, guys. It's just very simply looking at what we do repeatedly. Do I have the length? And then can I create force at that length is what really determines long-term success. That if I really want to create this outcome of resilient, robust, strong, powerful, 
high ceiling athlete that's just getting started and not getting myopically locked into performance and singular exercises that are just part of the equation, then I can create real meaningful change for my athletes and clients. That I have this length, that I have the ability to create force both distally, distally and proximally in a closing angle or regressive angle. I'm downturning muscle spindle stretch response. I'm downturning Golgi tendon tension response. I'm not getting cramping in the Golgi tendon aspect. I'm not getting, I'm not getting this inhibitory reflex from the muscle spindle response. I'm just getting to these ranges and albeit uncomfortable, getting really good at it, getting really good at it. I can create force in a closing angle and op- an opening angle better than other people. That's the game. And we're talking about too, and I think I want to mention this before we break here, is you got to think about it too of when we're making closing angle tension, so let's just use a quad here. I'm bringing that, I'm sitting on the ground, I'm bringing that quad up off the ground so the sarcomere is now closest to that hip capsule. I'm going to start to be really demanded. I'm creating length on the on the opening angle side, which is stretching the tissues there as well. And one of the things that's really, really powerful is this idea of joint centration and controlling the contractile tissues around that joint to create that compression to integrate into a movement pattern and vice versa. If I'm doing a, a more distal or a open angle lengthening, so now I'm going towards the quad again and I'm going towards the knee, so I'm going into the bottom of the squat, the closing angle side is starting to get shortened and I need to not create overly active tissues there or the lengthened tissues on the, towards the glute on that glute side that those tissues aren't creating this GTO response up to the up to the brain to stop or inhibit that movement in any way that I have control of the muscle cell through my nervous system by having adequate length and adequate tension on both the closing and open angle side or the regressive and, regressive and, and progressive side as I build in these move, this force length continuum that I need to, need to have in place, that the movement patterns aren't limited by that. So this is going to be a big part of the actual practical. So I'll hold off a little bit. But things that we need to really establish are, let's get that length. Let's create force at length. Let's start to look at what we repeatedly do and build programs and protocols that address that first and foremost. So I hope that helps, guys. Um, I think there's a lot to unpack in this month. So get on the modules. Really, really sit with it for a while. The graphics, the the writing, um, everything. Go back through the other force length modules because this is not an easy thing to unpack. Uh, it's it, it takes a long time to sit with it. And t- to be honest, like since I've written about it and I've talked about it a lot, I've gotten a lot better in my understanding of it. Um, but I'm still working at it. And I still think there's a lot to learn on it because it's just a theory. But, you know, if I can create more force at length, then I'm probably going to have a lot more bandwidth to do things that I want to do. But I think it's a sound theory. I think it's something that makes a lot of sense when you really start to think, think about it in a way. And then the fun part is to practically apply it. So I appreciate you guys. Uh, make sure you tune in next week as well because we got our, our next series of this practical application and then we got a case study and interview. So thanks you guys and uh, we'll see you guys uh, next week.